0: hello everybody and good morning it is about 8 30 a.m here in the sacramento valley on thursday november 5th as our country nervously waits out the results of our recent elections i am jesse kureyev your kdvs news director and today we will be bringing you updates and commentary from political leaders students activists and academics on what has happened over the last few days we're going to start off with some local election updates. Then we'll move on to an analysis of some of California's most controversial ballot propositions from Science and Conservation Division Head Neha Madugala. And finally, we'll end off with an overview of the national situation closer to the half hour mark done by our US Politics Division Head Ella Steinbach. While all eyes have been on the presidency in the last few days, local governments across the nation have elected new council members and passed new ordinances. Former President Lyndon B. Johnson once said that government is best which is closest to the people. And that's certainly something Americans have taken to heart, considering how much local government has come to affect our everyday lives. Here in Davis, we faced a number of contentious city council and ballot measure campaigns, largely all focusing around housing. Most important in those were Measures D and B. Measure B sought to approve a new major development in Davis, while Measure D asked the voters, should large construction projects like the one that Measure B is proposing be put up to a vote by the citizens? Measure B narrowly failed, while Measure D passed in a landslide. Joining us to discuss this is Adam Hatafi, the former external affairs vice president for the UC Davis student body and current host of his new podcast, The Politaker. Adam, personally, is not too fond of how the
1: election turned out. I'm upset about both those things, and I'll tell you why. Measure B, the reason Measure B is even a thing, is in effect Measure D, or what Measure D is renewing, right? Um, Everybody who is who knows about this, and Davis really loves talking about it for like hours and hours, but I'm going to really shorten it into like two-minute summary. Back in the 80s, there was like this growth spur in Davis, and we just built a ton of buildings and developments. And then in the 90s, there was a backlash, and they passed what was at the time called Measure J, which basically said if you're going to rezone areas to develop on or if you're going to develop in certain areas, certain large parts of, of lands that have been zoned for urban development, you need to put that whole thing to... Uh, a vote right um, and then that was in 1990 in, in uh, the year sorry that was yeah that passed in I believe 2000 and then in 2010 it was renewed as it was as measure R and that's why it was called, referred to until now as JR. For Adam measures
0: J and R are one of the biggest reasons for why the Davis housing market often considered one of the worst in the state is the way it is Measure J was passed in the year 2000, with a time limit on its implementation. As that time limit ran out, the City Council began to consider a renewal, and finally decided to resubmit it as the new Proposition D. The renewal process itself was a contentious battle between student leaders like Adam, interested in building more housing, and Davis Townies looking to retain control over new construction and development projects.
1: I really, when I was the uh, external affairs vice president for ASUCD, I really, really did push the city council to, uh, to adopt alternative language for the renewal. I even wrote them out, the entire ordinance. Like I had an ordinance that I gave to the city council and the city manager. They decided to not go with that and to go with just a straight renewal with minor adjustments that don't really make a difference, just technical adjustments. And that's what Measure D was. And I am really upset to see that it passed so overwhelmingly. Adam believes that Measure D only passed because of COVID-19. I would say that if COVID-19 had not happened and students were in town, this measure would not have passed. This measure would have failed because the students, like, I mean, we would have run a campaign to get students to vote no on it. Like, I personally would have done that. And it, I, I think when you tell students, oh, this is the reason you're paying so much in rent, they'd be like, oh, oh. No, no, we're not renewing that, right? I think that would be the reaction. But COVID-19 happened, students weren't in town, we couldn't really run a campaign. Um, and so the, prop, the, the, the measure passed and it's going to be there for 10 more years, right? That's, that's another 10 years of having to put every development project up to a vote.
0: Alongside Measure D, voters in Davis also considered Measure B, which narrowly failed with 52% of the vote going against it. Measure B would have approved a new development on Davis's east side, which would have featured housing, businesses, and academic offices. Aurora Shuneman, president of Davis College Democrats, was not pleased with its failure.
2: I,
3: Measure B, the fact that it didn't pass does not bode well for the future of Davis, um, economically.
0: Adam agrees with this sentiment highlighting the potential job loss as one of the main reasons he personally supported Measure
1: B. Now, I wasn't a big fan of the development project that Measure D was proposing. I think the project was lackluster at best, but it was something, it was, it was you know, an increase in the, in the housing market, and it was an increase in the, like it was an expansion of the job market, which has been lacking so much in Davis that the, there is no place for recent graduates to go to work after they graduate from UC Davis, right? You have to leave Davis. Like even if you really love Davis and you want to stay there, there are very limited opportunities. Like there are no opportunities for recent graduates to stay in Davis. And that measure B would have addressed some of that because it was creating a research campus. It was creating uh, a technology research facility uh, and scientific research facility that was going to create jobs and provide housing. And I think that would have been very valuable to the city. I don't think it was perfect, I think it was
0: something. Hatafi wasn't the only one upset by this. Measure B was one of the few things that unified campus Democrats and Republicans in an extraordinarily contentious election year. Jenna DiCarlo, co-chair of the Davis College Republicans, similarly shared concerns over Measure B's failures with her uh, liberal and Democratic counterparts.
4: There was, I know, some support for Measure B in um, providing those housing facilities and um Ensuring that those are done just because in DCR we do very much favor the housing initiatives in Davis and to ensure more housing. Um, I know that that was something we collaborated on with the Davis College Democrats in the past. Um, So I know there was a little bit of disappointment there that that was failing. City Council elections
0: also provided an upset last night in the Davis City Council's 2nd District, where Colin Walsh, a longtime vehement opponent of new housing construction, lost in a landslide to incumbent Will Arnold. Adam, a proponent of student housing construction, clashed with him many times in the past few years. I don't want to be
1: petty, but I'm very happy that Colin lost. Colin Walsh is referred to in davis political circles as the troll under the davis bridge there were multiple uh multiple accusations of incredibly sexist uh comments and behavior uh and i I was there for some of those that happened like i remember those happening um that came out on social media from alicia hacker and maya de la rosa uh and then uh, he was you know he was always he was he made up conspiracy theories on social media he bullied people uh digitally um and he was running this campaign that like portrayed him as something he really wasn't and that really irks me like if he was running as yes i believe in what i believe in and i'm gonna make it happen no matter what the cost and that's how it goes okay i mean i don't agree with what you believe in and i don't agree with your methods but at least you're being honest right his campaign was really like these like charmed like you know charming folksy kind of like small town environmentalist kind of dude that's not who you are everybody who has been involved with davis politics for any length more than you know two hours knows that that's not what you are Uh, it was a really dishonest camera so i'm really glad that colin lost um i disagree with his ideas vehemently he's opposed to any kind of development he's opposed to any kind of growth he just makes up excuses to be opposed to each project as he goes, so sometimes his excuses oppose, oppose Project A are the opposite of his excuse to like, oppose Project B, so it's like, there's the, he's just, he just opposes any kind of development, and any kind of growth, he wants Davis to look like how it did when he was here, which was the 70s, and I feel like that's kind of a way to say something that maybe should not be said, but, um, uh, you know, his, he, I, I, again, I'm glad that he lost, I think he would have been, uh, he would have, him winning an elected office would have been a stain uh, on, you know, democracy, uh, and I'm glad that that didn't happen.
0: The leadership of Davis College Democrats similarly found solace in Colin's loss.
3: Colin Walsh, you know, was defeated by a large margin, you know, as you just said, which I hope really, like, indicates that that his brand of, of politics and views in Davis are just not, nobody, you know, the people don't agree.
0: While many students don't see too much hope in his competitor, Will Arnold, they still consider him better than the alternative. Adam Hatafi agrees. Will Arnold
1: has been a city council member that has worked with us in the past, has been reasonable. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, I'm glad that, I'm, again, I'm more glad that Colin lost than I am about Will. Like, I didn't really, like, I'm glad that Will won. I know Will, he, he, he's a great guy. Um, I, w- I, d- I wouldn't have had a problem if Dylan had won. I, I, Dylan's a friend of mine, honestly. I, like, either of those guys would have been a great choice. Um, I'm just not Colin lost.
0: <laughs> While housing advocates may have suffered a major loss in Tuesday's election, things like Colin Walsh's defeat still give them hope. This has been Jesse Curea for KDVS News. Next up is Neha Madugala, giving us an overview of the California proposition election results.
5: Hello, my name is Neha Madugala, and today I'll be looking at three state propositions from the recent election. First, we'll be discussing Proposition 15. Proposition 15 will require that property taxes be paid on the current market value of the property instead of the purchase price. Since current market values are higher than the purchase prices, this will result in a hike in property taxes that are meant to help raise money for schools and local governments. Prop 15 will only directly affect California property owners with properties that are or exceed $3 million. Supporters suggest that this proposition will help revamp schools and cities and close property tax loopholes that only benefit wealthy corporations. Furthermore, supporters of Proposition 15 suggest that its passing will make newer businesses more capable of competing with older businesses. In an interview with Adam Hatefi, the past ASUCD External Affairs Vice President, and the UC Students Association Campaign Chair, Adam shares his thoughts on how competition between businesses may be influenced by the potential passing of Proposition 15.
1: It makes it so that businesses that have been in an area for a longer period of time are still, like if you bought your business, I don't know, 40 years ago, uh, your store 40 years ago in a locality, and you were operating a coffee shop, right? You've been there, you've been operating a coffee shop or a restaurant for 40 years. You're paying the taxes that were assessed on your property 40 years ago. Um, Whereas when a new person comes, they have to pay the taxes of today. And so what that does is it, it, it limits the ability of new businesses to prop up in areas where older businesses, older competitors have been there. Uh, seeing as to how the older competitors are paying taxes on a significantly smaller um, property value than the, than the new tenants.
5: On the other hand, opponents of Prop 15 suggest that while the initial tax hikes will affect mainly large landlords, there may be a trickle-down effect which will indirectly affect tenants and customers.
1: The trickle-down effect is the idea that, uh, first of all, if a business's property taxes go up, uh, they're going to increase the price of the stuff they're selling to their consumers right i think that's a flawed argument for a couple of reasons first it's up to that business whether they want to increase the price and if you increase competition in a locality then if a business increases its price then it's going to have to deal with the fact that a competitor might not right it might just take it out of their profits um it when it comes to tenants, uh, the other issue is that a lot of business properties aren't actually owned by the people who are operating them. They are owned by a third party that's renting them out, right? These are leased properties uh, and are being used for business, but they're not owned by the people who are doing business inside of them. Now, those, that's an issue that is a real uh, issue where the owners might increase um, the rents on their tenants. But commercial leases are usually not one year leases they usually go to for five to ten years right like if you're leasing a commercial property if it's like if you've been in business for more than one year and you're leasing a commercial property usually your first year of business you get a one or two year lease but then after that you go for a longer term lease so you have business stability you know how much you're paying for the next few years and also you know that you're not going to get kicked out of your (laughs) your place of business uh, at the end of like a year from now right um, so it 's a flawed argument because first of all, not all the tenants will end up paying a higher amount until a few years from now by which point the market will have will have equalized, and the effect of these property taxes will have um, kind of uh, like the the, the short term negative effects will have kind of gone out the window but also the businesses that do business in their in their own property. Um, they either own the property outright or they have a mortgage on it if they have a if they own the property outright it 's completely up to them whether to increase those prices or not and take it out of their profits or take it out of their uh, consumers pockets and that 's kind of how the business world should work right you either If you increase your prices, your customer 's going to react negatively <laughs> you might lose some business but it's, it's, i think it 's a flawed argument because it doesn 't take into consideration the fact that Neither of those things will have will have a widespread market effect, whereas the, the increase in competitive competition uh, and the increase in school funding will have statewide effects.
5: As of 4 p.m. on November fourth, 51.7 percent of voters have voted no on Prop 15, with 72 percent of votes being reported so far. It is too early to determine for certainty whether Prop 15 will be passed. Now, moving on to Proposition 16, which, according to the current polls, did not pass with 56.1% of voters in opposition. If Proposition 16 were to pass, it would have restored affirmative action in California and reversed the previous proposition, Proposition 209, which banned race-based and sex-based affirmative action in California. Prominent supporters included the major public university, University of California. Supporters of Prop 16 suggest that this proposition will lead to increased diversity that better reflects the current demographics of California compared to when Proposition 209 was passed. According to the Vote Yes on Prop16.org, the essence of the pro-argument for Prop 16 is to create equal opportunities and level the playing field for people who are inherently disadvantaged due to structural racism and sexism. Voting no for Prop 16 would mean that Proposition 209 would remain intact and race-based and sex-based considerations cannot be used for public education, public employment, or public contracting. For more on this, Adam talks more about the downsides of Proposition 16.
1: My issue with this proposition was kind of that because um, when you think about race and ethnicity, there is, within each category of race that we talk about there's an entire diaspora and having affirmative action based on race allowing the universities and the and state agencies to consider uh, race as a factor in choosing to employ someone or admit someone it it does create an issue with okay you're talking we're talking about asian students but there aren't just one kind of Asian students. There are Chinese students, there are Chinese American students, there are Japanese American students, there are Vietnamese American students, there are Asian communities that have been um, historically marginalized significantly more than their fellow Asian communities uh, by the the fact of the country that they were originally from. So I feel like it was... Affirmative action based on race does provide a kind of a band-aid for the inequities of the past and the, and the injustices of the past for the black and brown community. But does it take into consideration the complexities of the Asian community? Does it take into consideration the fact that um, there are different subgroups uh, within each of these communities? It doesn't. And if it did, I would be, my, my view on it maybe would be different.
5: The last proposition we will be discussing today is Proposition 22. If passed, Proposition 22 would make drivers for Uber and Lyft independent contractors instead of employees. This would essentially exempt Uber and Lyft from the legislation AB5, which took effect in January 2020, and according to the Economic Policy Institute, helps, quote, ensure that California's workers who perform core work under company control versus as independent businesses have access to basic labor and employment protections and benefits denied to independent contractors." End quote. If passed, drivers will be able to decide when, where, and for how long they want to work. There will be some consumer safety changes and more driver background checks, and drivers will receive certain benefits contingent on the amount of engaged time, or how long the driver is actually working. For more on the supporting side of Prop 22, Jenna DeCarlo, the co-chair for the Davis College Republicans, shares her thoughts. Um, I'm
4: definitely happy about Prop 22. Um, I think it's super important for independent contractors to remain independent contractors, especially since I believe the number is like one in three or one in four independent contractors wanted to stay that way so that they could have those flexible hours. Um, a lot of, for a lot of people, it was a second source of income they were still able to have those benefits from their companies, but still have the benefits if they had other jobs. Um, And I think it just ensures that companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and companies like that stay in California, Um, because if you were to have those companies leave, it would one, it would put, you know, over 100,000 people out of of work, and two, it it would significantly, I think, um, increase the levels of drunk driving if those companies left because um, Uber and Lyft are definitely essential services. So I'm really glad that that passed.
5: On the other hand, the opposition argues that the passing of Prop 22 will take away protection from the company and employee benefits for the drivers, which includes overtime pay, health care, paid sick leave, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. Adam Hatefi talks more on concerns of these companies leaving California and the opposition viewpoint.
1: I mean, just a little background, like they, the entire like pulling out of California was a stunt. They they pulled out of the state as a, I mean, if they had actually pulled out of the state, we could have just had another right chair system that somebody put out, like in California, they weren't going to leave a 40 million person market. That was absurd. And they're just like, oh, we don't want to pay our, uh, pay, pay the people who are making us all this money, a living wage and give them benefits and give them, you know, the dignity of being an actual employee and have an actual wage and pay them with, like, minimum wage standards. So we're just going to throw millions and millions of dollars. I think something like 20 million, I don't remember. Like, this was the most expensive proposition in American history. They just threw millions and millions of dollars at trying to get the people to override the legislature so that they wouldn't have to pay their employees a, a living wage and a proper benefits. It was, it was not something I... Um, I, I feel like this sets a horrible precedent. It's if, if we have regulations for labor or other regulations for corporations a couple of years later, and the corporate like labor regulations to like make it better for workers a couple of years down the road, and the major corporations are just going to override that by throwing millions and millions of dollars to it. Well, how are we going to how are we going to move forward in our in our in our uh, uh, economic but like, progressive agenda?
5: Addressing concerns that the companies will leave California if Prop 22 does not pass, Jenna DeCarlo shares her opinions on these claims.
4: I mean, I can honestly understand that argument. I know that that has been something that we have talked about, that essential blackmailing, like do this or leave. Um, But at the same time, honestly, it's kind of hard because you know, that makes sense as an argument and like they're blackmailing, like, Hey, we're going to leave. We're g- you're going to lose these essential services. And it does make sense that they are blackmailing Californians, but at the same time, we don't have anything to replace them at the moment. I mean, obviously, you know, it'd be easy for a startup company to do that or other companies who did decide to stay, but until those companies became more prominent, um, they very much are becoming essential services. Like you said, especially during COVID times, um, so you take that away and you're kind of taking that away from a lot of people. But I also think that's why um, people wanted Prop 22 so badly is to just kind of get rid of that, you know, threat at all. Just say, hey, just keep them here.
5: Furthermore, the president of the Davis College Democrats, Aurora Shunemann, talks about funding issues that may have led to the passing of Prop 22.
3: No, absolutely. I mean, Uber, Uber, Lyft and DoorDash literally bought that proposition it was the most expensive prop- ballot proposition in california history as you know as i'm sure you know and you know it just kind of goes to show like this is what happens when we have like um no limits on the amount of money that ha- that are in campaigns and you know like people with the uber and lyft apps on their phones were getting push notifications telling them to vote yes and you know for a lot of folks who don't have you know low information voters like it's very easy to just like something is on your phone it must be important like sure let's just vote yes on that
5: According to the current polls, Prop 22 will pass with 58.4% in favor and 72% of votes counted as of 5 p.m. on November 4th. Thank you for tuning in today for a report on state propositions. Thank you to the Davis College Democrats, the Davis College Republicans, and the former External Affairs Vice President Adam Patefi, who also is running the podcast The Politaker, for joining us today.
0: And finally, we have Ella Steinbach to give us an update on the national situation and some of its implications after a winner is declared.
2: Hello, this is Ella Steinbach, a reporter with KDVS News. I am going to be covering the national election. I spoke with UC Davis's Professor Jones this morning about a variety of policy and electoral issues, including immigration, climate change, and COVID-19, as well as the challenges to building accurate polling models and potential challenges to mail-in voting.
6: I'm Professor Brad Jones. I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science here at UC Davis. I uh, teach and do research in the area of race and ethnic politics with a particular emphasis on Latino politics, uh, immigration policy, and uh, immigration generally.
2: Prior to the Trump presidency, the asylum process followed a pretty consistent pattern once an individual had made it to U.S. soil. There would be arrangements for the asylum seeker to live with a host family, and a court date would be set for them to make their case before a judge. Even at the best of times, asylum was an extremely challenging case to successfully make, and only a small minority of applicants were granted asylum, while those denied asylum would be deported.
6: And that's really the way it was for many, many years. Now, under the Trump administration, things changed dramatically, uh, in part uh, in part, as, as a bit of show and, uh, and in part in the way that maybe the Trump administration thought that they should handle asylum seekers.
2: The Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy, implemented around early 2019, has been a major disruptor to this long-standing process.
6: You know, for a time there, just hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of migrants uh, arriving at the border, unable to present themselves for purposes of asylum seeking. And so it created the illusion and then the reality that the border was being overrun by asylum seekers.
2: The administration has deemed the policy a success since it has successfully lowered the number of asylum applicants, as individuals are deterred by the exceptionally harsh waiting conditions. Biden has made commitments to reform the asylum process, while under another Trump presidency, the policy would likely remain in place. Meanwhile, these asylum seekers will continue to return to dangerous conditions in their home countries
6: under the trump administration um especially with respect to um central american migrants the remain in mexico issue did serve as a deterrent um uh uh, probably a deadly deterrent Uh, uh, some asylum seekers many asylum seekers are leaving because of uh, fear of violence uh, violent crime gang violence uh, domestic violence um In other cases, they're leaving because of uh, uh, climatological issues.
2: Today is the first day the U.S. will be officially withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has promised to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord on day one in office. As of Wednesday night, the Associated Press has not yet declared the winning presidential candidate. While many believed the election would quickly go in former Vice President Biden's favor, a major blow was dealt to his campaign last night with the loss of Florida. Many attribute this loss to Biden's weak performance with Latino voters, who many media outlets portray as a liberal monolith.
6: So by monolithic voting, um, what you mean is that they reliably and predictably and overwhelmingly, will vote for one party over the other. And so, in the case of in the case of Latino voters, that in general is not the case. There's significant uh, heterogeneity. That is variability. That's very predictable across um, across Latino subgroups. Um, not just uh, subgroups due to national origin. For example, Mexican Mexican Americans look much different than Cuban, Cuban Americans, but also due to uh, language differences, generational status, so third generation uh, Latinos uh, who are English, third third generation or beyond Latinos who maybe only speak English um, look much differently than, say, a first generation naturalized citizen um, who may predominantly speak um, Spanish. In the case of the latter, much more reliably uh, Democratic, in the case of the former, much less reliably Democratic. What I'm cautioning uh, you, the, your listeners is that whenever, you were, whenever you're given information or data uh, based on opinion polls from a group that has linguistic variability, and this would also include you know Asian and Asian immigrants as well, because there's just far more languages. If, if the survey is not done in language, you will, with certainty, get a non-representative swath of that particular um, subgroup. So in 2016, it was widely reported that 30% of Latinos voted for Donald Trump. In reality, uh, if you take a look at uh, the Latino Decisions poll that was taken in 2016, uh, thousands of Latino voters across all sorts of demographics, and they do their polls in Spanish language, uh, they do it in language, uh, the actual number was really closer to 18 to 20%. As we speak, which is um, the day after the election, there is a great deal of uncertainty about who will become the president. I suspect based on just the analysis of, of some of the results that, that, that I'm seeing, um, I suspect that Biden will get uh, to 270 and will eventually um, become the next president. But at this point, there's a big you know, standard error around that, around that prediction. Now, the reason I'm going on about the election, of course, is that that will affect DACA. So if Biden uh, is elected, then DACA, I would predict and fairly uncontroversially predict that DACA would be fully restored and renewed to uh, where it was uh, prior to uh, the 2018 effort um, when Trump had Jeff Sessions summarily uh, end the program. Now, the court since then has spoken, and so DACA is no longer uh, in, in the same legal jeopardy it was. Now, if Trump is, is elected, um, if he wins, will they go after DACA again? Probably.
2: DACA was established in 2012 by executive order under former President Barack Obama. DACA offers legal work status and temporary residence to young individuals brought to the United States as children under the age of 16 who are deemed to not pose a risk to public safety. The Department of Homeland Security set forth a set of requirements that individuals must initially meet and then reapply for every two years in order to remain eligible. California had the highest number of DACA recipients in the United States, around 223,000 as of 2017. There are tens of thousands of U.S.-born children of DACA recipients living in the state. Thousands of students in the UC system, including UC Davis, have been able to pursue higher education in the U.S. as a direct result of the law. In 2018, President Trump terminated the reapplication process. This presented a significant threat to the livelihood of tens of thousands of DACA recipients, as well as the national economy, where DACA recipients pay high tax rates, attain high levels of education, and see remarkably high rates of employment.
6: The answer is really simple. If Biden is elected, the restoration of the program, as ushered in by the court decision earlier, earlier in the summer, will, will continue. And so the program will be renewed. Uh, Biden has been a supporter uh, of DACA. Obviously, he was a bi- vice president when, when that program was, uh, was implemented under Trump. Uh, it's, it's, it's at best murky what will happen.
2: In Kentucky, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell beat Democratic Senate candidate Amy McGrath handily despite running one of the most expensive political campaigns in American history. McGrath was able to raise around $90 million for the election and McConnell raising around $57 million, according to the FEC data. With 98% of the vote reporting, McConnell is leading by around 20 points.
6: Uh, the number one thing I would encourage uh, the list, your listeners, to everyone, is to uh, A, be patient. It is not uncommon. In fact, it's more common than not that we don't know the outcome of elections, in many cases, for several days. So in 2018, on the night of the election, everyone was predicting a blue wave and everyone was so disappointed that the blue wave didn't happen. You know why? Because it took about five to six days for all of the votes across the various races to fully be counted. And once they were counted, we actually did have the blue wave. Now, there's no evidence as yet, and I don't think there will emerge any evidence that there was a blue wave uh, in 2020. But for many of these races, including the presidential race in some places, It will just simply take time. I'm a political scientist. I've studied uh, voting behavior. I've done my own research on voting behavior, but I certainly read all of the research on voting behavior. There's no evidence uh, uh, in in any recent election, not a shred of evidence of any systematic and widespread um, voter fraud.
2: This has been Ella Steinbach with National Election News on KDVS.
0: And this has been Jesse Kureyev with music by Ross Bugden and the ever-illusory Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you have a good rest of your day.